0: Stanford
1: University. Fetan Todorov, who is with us as the 2010 Harry Camp Memorial Lecturer. Uh, The Harry Camp Memorial Fund was established in 1956 by friends and associates of Harry Camp, a a prominent philanthropist in San Francisco. It brings outstanding uh, speakers to the university for public lectures every other year. And the camp lectures are presented as part of the Presidential and Endowed Lectures in the Humanities and the Arts, uh, which are sponsored by the President's Office and administered here by the Humanities Center. Now, after tonight's lecture, there will be a short time for questions. Uh, Professor Todorov will also conduct a final seminar tomorrow, Thursday at 4 p.m. at uh, the boardroom uh, uh, across the hall. Um, and, and here at the Humanities Center. And for more information, there are, are uh, flyers available uh, um, just by the door, and you can also visit our website, website shc.stanford.edu. And now, to introduce Professor Todorov, I'd like to turn to my colleague Karen Luigi Chapelle, the Francis and Charles Field uh, uh, Professor in History.
0: So good afternoon, it's a great pleasure for me as a historian to introduce this afternoon's speaker because few in recent years have turned over in their minds so incessantly, so insightfully, and so insistently as Svetan Todorov the essential questions about the past, about history, about historical writing, and about historians. Few have made so strong a case for the continuing relevance and vitality of the past or for the moral responsibilities of the historian. In his theoretical works, Todorov has endeavored to clarify the philosophical foundations that permit and even oblige historians to be moralists, oblige them to pass judgment on people and phenomena distant from them in time and space, just as they do on the present. In the face of what others have called a crisis of objectivity, that is, strong, even canonical challenges to epistemological certitude and the autonomy of evidence, he has maintained that standards of justice can be based upon absolute principles that are universally human, universally desirable, and universally valid. And that for this reason, the moral judgments historians make can have a validity transcending time. History cannot be understood as purely descriptive or neutral, or as pure erudition detached from social debate. Historians and their readers need to know, as he has said, not just how things were, but how they ought to be. And in his investigations of specific historical events and past actors, Todorov has endeavored to demonstrate the ethical value of histories that, in his words, affirm our common ties to our fellow men and women. Challenging the conception of the past as dead and gone, of history as a received narrative of unique and incommensurable events that no one is allowed to touch or intrude upon, he has conceptualized an alternative kind of history that is, in his term, exemplary. A dialogue of past with present, a model from which lessons can be drawn, in his words, a principle of action for the present. Here is how he concludes his essay on the morality of history. The historian can assume in two ways the role of moral agent. First, in accepting and revealing the potentially tragic character of the human condition. In showing that no conflict plays itself out exclusively in ideological constructs, but instead involves individuals who can suffer and perish. And secondly, in putting dialogue above the preservation of a sacred past. In doing this, the historian is finally only fulfilling a duty incumbent on every human being. This is what his readers have seen Svetan Todorov do in the 16th century encounter of Aztecs and Spaniards, in the Enlightenment, in the France of 1944, and what we have the benefit of of this week with his understanding of the experience of totalitarianism in the 20th and 21st centuries. This afternoon's subject is The Exemplary Life of Germain Tillon, Please join me in welcoming Svetan Todorov.
2: I must start by apologizing in front of you because I will talk about a person uh, whose name you ignore. And uh, she has a certain fame in France, but definitely none in this country. So um, in the beginning, you will just perceive a very ordinary person. But little by little, I think, you will be able to see also that she had something exemplary in her life, and thus deserves to be known and respected. So I, I cannot write down her name, Tillon, with a double L and an I after the L. Germaine, she was a woman born early, early in the 20th century, and she died early in the 21st century. She lived more than 100 years. Um, I will not tell you about her whole life, because that would be too long for one hour's lecture, but rather on her, the years during which she became who she was, the formative years. And this started roughly in 34. She was 27 year old. And ended about 64, 30 years later. So, episode number one. Germaine Tillon was attracted by the profession of anthropologist. Uh, she was a very ordinary young woman at that time. Like her parents, she considered herself a practicing Catholic. She didn't belong to any political movement, but felt a very strong attachment to her native country, to France. Basically, loving its landscapes, its customs, its peasants, its teachers, the population. population. Although this wasn't a blind admiration, she was also aware of the current weaknesses of France, like in any other country. But then she decided to become an anthropologist. Um, Since her fairly chaotic studies at the university, she wasn't really following any uh, well-defined, itinerary, she f- experienced an insatiable curiosity about, about cultures different from her own. She was friendly with people who joined the new institution which was to be created in 37 and to be called Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Man, which didn't exist until that day, and whose directors were closely related to a political movement of these days, which was called the Popular Front, Le Front Populaire, which in 36, for the first time, took over, won the elections, a left-wing government around socialists and communists. So the directors of the museum were ideologically related to this um, new government, and that's why the museum came into existence. But uh, one should notice that the members of of its staff were not against colonialism. Colonialism was so well accepted by society that people didn't perceive it as a necessity to protest against it. Nevertheless, the members of this group knew that, as she later wrote, racism was an utterly heinous madness. And With this mindset, the young anthropologists who were like the first generation of anthropologists in this country, after finishing their studies, traveled to four corners of the globe to study foreign cultures. So the first experience that ti had once she had set up in the field involved the people in the Ores region. Ores is a mountain and a region in Algeria, in central Algeria, eastern and central Algeria. And uh, the first striking discovery that Tion made was that uh, the inhabitants there, to her great disappointment as a matter of fact, were very close to traditional French peasants. They were not exotic as she had imagined they would be. She could understand their form, uh, she could understand them by projecting herself on them simply. And the relationships she fostered were based on reciprocity. told them about herself so that they could afterwards tell her about themselves trust gradually replaced suspicion then there was a second formative experience tillon felt liberated from the through the fact that she lived with people different from herself as she would write it later, belonging to a foreign culture frees you from your ingrained passions. One's own culture is no longer viewed as natural. A certain sense of detachment develops, and while maintaining an inner vision of of oneself normally, one also develops an external frame of reference. With respect to that self. The effect of this dual vision and this division within the self, seeing oneself from within and from without at the same time, could be refreshing and also comical at times. And then a the third formative experience occurred during this same period although she wasn't really aware of it at that time. And she described it thus in a later interview. My experience from 34 to 1940, it lasted for six years, in the Ores in Algeria, had taught me to live in a milieu that was completely foreign to me and to look at all political problems as objects as something existing outside of herself. This way of treating the world around herself as an object of study would happen to become particularly useful in the years to come. So she completed her mission in in Algeria in early June 1940 and returned to Paris. But June 1940 was not any date in French history. It was the moment when the French army and within the French state collapsed because of the invasion of German forces. Now, Tillon refused to accept for a moment the idea of the defeat and thus joined, or rather invented, the resistance immediately, spontaneously. She didn't come to it via scholarly or a political analysis, but from a purely patriotic reflex. Pétain, Pétain was the head of state, and his announcement requesting an armistice that is, stopping all resistance, made her literally vomit. By the next day, she had decided that she absolutely had to do something and began looking for other people who were having a similar reaction. She found them without much difficulty. It was also patriotism that even though she knew that they were they were not all Nazis, immediately rendered all Germans suspect in her eyes. She would change on that point later. Once she joined the resistance, Thiond made new discoveries. While anthropology had taught her that no qualitative difference separated one type of human beings from another, and that on closer examination, what appeared different was actually pretty similar. At this point, she learned that all people are not alike and that friends and families can turn out to be complete strangers. There were indeed two races of mankind But they didn't follow the opposition between European and African, or civilized men and barbarians. They do not differ according to the tenets of different political positions either, or membership in different parties. Tillon discovered that among her comrades in the resistance, the political views Ranged from far left wing to monarchists and extreme right wing Catholics. Tillon, who continued to speak to everyone, therefore described herself as a moderate, since she could talk to anyone. Social class or category were of little importance as well. In the resistance, the principal division was very simple. Those who are with us and those who are against us. Deported to Ravensbrück a few years later, she gradually refined her intuition. She then believed that the division of humanity into two main categories, was of a moral nature. I'm quoting. There were those who knew they would rather die than betray, and others who would rather betray than die. There were those who knew they could give their last piece of bread, and others who could steal it from someone who was ill or a child, thus the one human virtue she valued more than any other was reliability. She would see close up the actions of those who choose to betray, because she herself was a victim of a traitor, but even worse, betrayal would send her friends from the l'Homme to the firing squad, and her own mother to the gas chamber in Ravensbrück. She would discover that certain human beings, not satisfied with betraying through egotism or greed, actually enjoyed watching others suffer. For her, these people occupied the lowest rung of mankind, and embodied what she would call the atrocious side of humanity. It was a cruel lesson. These were, after all, men and women like any other ordinary people. She would never again be able to delude herself about humanity or forget its atrocious side. Every society, she thought, contained its own seeds of hate, fear, and crime, which under certain circumstances could be transformed into monstrosities, similar to those she experienced at Ravensbrück. In latent form, the extreme lies within the ordinary. With this, Ti completed an important step in her education. As she said, it was then and only then that I reassessed my lessons in the humanities. Of course, a kind of study in the humanities that we don't choose to practice voluntarily. At the same time, she made other discoveries about herself. She learned that the greatest suffering was not caused by blows or even the prospect of dying, but by the suffering inflicted on those close to her, which she was utterly powerless to alleviate. She endured this painful ordeal at least twice. The first was when her friends of the Musée L'Homme were arrested, tortured, and ultimately sentenced to death. Imagining the blood spattering these dear familiar faces was unbearable. She found herself, she wrote, with a knot of pain in the place of a heart. What further aggravated her suffering was the feeling that she may somehow have been even partly responsible for what happened to the others. She wrote, defending a moral thesis in an armchair while sipping a cup of tea is one thing. It's something else to tell yourself that people, alive, happy, surrounded by families who love them, will suffer a real death after a real torture, because they listened to you and your edifying reasons. The second ordeal was no less unbearable. It involved her own mother. Emily Tillon was her name, and she was arrested for collusion with her daughter's illegal activities, in this case, for having sheltered English paratroopers. As a daughter, she couldn't help but feel responsible for the fate of her mother. The two women were held in the same prison for a time. Germaine was then sent without her mother to Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück was the women's camp in northern Germany, where she arrived in late October 1943. She was therefore hoping Emily her mother would be liberated. Instead she learned during the roll call on February in February 44 that her mother has just arrived in the camp as well. I was paralyzed with pain she wrote and she did everything in her power to make her mother's internment less painful but couldn't, could do nothing against the policy of extermination. On March 1st, 1945, Emily was thrown in the gas chamber, condemned to death because she looked too old. The daughter was powerless and her suffering unspeakable. Alongside this new vulnerability linked to the love and friendship felt for family and friends, Théaume made another discovery about herself. She was gripped with a new resolution upon learning of the imminent execution of her comrades in the resistance movement. If necessary, she was ready to kill. Any undertaking against the enemy seemed valid to me, she wrote later. It was no use condemning certain acts as being terrorist. In this battle, one could only defend oneself with the means at hand. Her own arrest was, in fact, linked to a terrorist plan. She was trying to liberate resistance prisoners and neutralize, that is, eliminate, a traitor. This new knowledge would be particularly useful to her 15 years later during the Algerian War. She suffered finally another brutal new experience in the camp. As soon as she arrived, she discovered a place where in just a few hours, human beings were dispossessed of everything that had been part their previous identity, from their most basic rights to their names, along with every object and item of clothing in their possession, even their hair. The purpose, often achieved, was the total degradation of the prisoners. Tiong wondered frequently why and how she was, How did it happen that she was among the camp survivors? It's an especially hard question given that the day after her mother was assassinated, she noted that her visceral desire to live had disappeared. She came up with a combination of reasons. First of all, Several days after this first feeling, she made a deliberate decision to stay alive. The Nazi's goal was to annihilate the prisoners. Surviving in this context, therefore, became an act of resistance, a way of defeating their plan. Added to that, of course, was a strong dose of luck. It was illusory to think, given the camp conditions, that anyone entirely controlled their own fate. All it would have taken was for one of the SS doctors to stop by the infirmary 15 minutes earlier or later to completely obliterate a categorical decision. And then the sense of duty, the deportees were aware of participating in and witnessing an exceptional situation, an unprecedented decline in the human species. Staying alive to provide an account to the rest of humanity was a sort of obligation, not to punish those responsible for crimes in the past but to prevent, insofar as it was possible, the recurrence of these crimes in the future. It was this same sense of mission that several years later led former deportees to embark on a fight against camps still operating in the USSR, in China, Greece, and Spain. Once the war was over, indeed, their traumatic experiences imposed on them a duty, that of sharing their lessons with others, and therefore to intervene in situations where other people had become victims and no longer they themselves. This is why in 1949, a former French deportee, David Rousset started a movement to support people still imprisoned in Soviet and Chinese camps, as well as in prisons in Spain or Greece. His appeal was addressed specifically to other former deportees. Tiong would always consider this appeal to help others as a duty allowing for no exception whatsoever. The members of the commission founded by Rousseau had no military, political, or diplomatic power. They had available one single weapon, the truth about these regimes, which they worked to uncover and disseminate to as many people as possible a kind of Amnesty International 20 years earlier. Tillon was also somewhat protected from the hardships of the camp by her ability to distance her sense of self from her current experiences. She owed this perhaps to what she called my intense interest for the spectacle of life and a certain lack of interest in myself and my own feelings, which allowed her to classify a real-life experience as one event among others in the outside world. This was, after all, the same personality trait that led her to a scientific career and which, as early as in Algeria, taught her to consider the situation she faced as an object to analyze. This trait was also undoubtedly responsible for the humor with which she viewed her fate. This was a conscious choice which she defended in a tract written for an underground publication on the very first year of the resistance. She wrote in 1941 in an illegal tract, we believe that gaiety and humor form a more dynamic intellectual climate than a tearful outlook. We intend to laugh and joke, and we consider that we have the right to do so, because every one of us is committed to the national adventure. Even in prison, when her interrogators threatened her with torture, she managed to get them to laugh with her self mockery. She replied to the indictment that could have brought her a fivefold death sentence with an ironic and witty letter that transformed truly tragic incidents into comedy. It could be that this letter was Tillon's first literary work, marking the discovery of a vocation. She experienced a state of bliss while composing it. I was so happy to be able to write with a pen. After five months, of absolute secrecy, that my hand was trembling with joy as I wrote," she wrote later. The same ability to laugh at herself allowed Tillon to write in Ravensbrück this absolutely extraordinary piece, which is a musical comedy, the only musical comedy ever written in a concentration camp. It was called the Verfugbar in Hell. And Verfugbar is a German word meaning available. And it was the designation of those inmates of the concentration camp who were not sent to such and such task outside of the camp to work in a factory or something else but who were remaining in the camp, hoping that they will escape the hardest work. But frequently they got the worst of possible works. So Germain wrote a musical comedy about the Verfugbar about these people. She wrote it by using the melodies of all sorts of current songs of the time and replacing the normal words of these songs with words describing the situation of the inmates. Songs coming from operettas, from popular songs, from military marches and so on and so forth. And the words were a sort of grotesque description of the conditions of life within the camp. I cannot quote at length from this because it is very idiosyncratic, uh, sort of mixed of French and German jargon. But just to give you an example of an exchange, there is a new inmate who just arrived, her name is Nenette. She's called Nenette. And she says, I want to go to a model camp with all facilities water, gas, electricity. And then the choir answers, Gas, especially. In the play, the deportees were dressed in rags, but cavorted like fashion models. They were exhausted but they danced the French can-can. They were treated like animals, but spoke a Polish classical language. They were scrawny and looked ugly, but were called the girls. Finally, another reason for Tillon's survival was what she called a coalition of friendship. And this is an important point when one talks about life in the concentration camp, because frequently we have a simplified vision of it as the end of all moral life, to say nothing, of friendship. But this is not Tillon's experience. It developed first in prison, where acts of solidarity were immediate and numerous. It continued, although to a lesser degree, in the camps, particularly among the women's camps. We must be wary of any simplistic vision on this. The depravity of some coexisted alongside the ennobled spirit of a few others. Protecting friends and family at one's own risk was not exceptional. Or as she wrote, the threads of friendship often seemed to be submerged by the raw brutality of selfishness. But the entire camp was invisibly interwoven with them. Tion left the camp in April 45, and after a few months of Uh, convalescence in Sweden, she returned to France and she used to describe the year that followed as the worst of her life, worse than in the camp. She couldn't find hard enough words to describe it. She sunk in a post-liberation depression and lost all desire to live. There were many reasons for her state of mind. Surviving, as I mentioned earlier, was perceived as an act of resistance against the exterminating desire of, uh, that motivated the Nazis. But once the Nazis were defeated, the pursuit of life lost its meaning. Because of that, she wrote, For many of us, liberation was a terrible thing as the buttress of danger suddenly disappeared for people whose life force had been broken. Without the simple joy of being alive, human beings need a goal beyond their existence. And danger awaits if this goal is achieved which is why Tillon wrote this warning, resistant fighters in all countries, be aware of your victory. The extinction of a reason to live paralleled other losses. Friends and families had disappeared in the turmoil. This was not only physical. Tillon no longer believed in God after she left the camp or as in her words, from the bottom of the abyss, we cried for you, and you didn't answer. The evil experienced in the camp was so excessive that ultimately it became incompatible with the idea of a world created and ordained by God. Perhaps even more serious for this ardent believer in that knowledge and civilization ennobled the heart of mankind was the fact that the German people were, at the dawn of World War II, among the most cultivated in the world, keen on philosophy, on literature, on music. None of that prevented them from committing the worst atrocities, were science, culture, education, completely useless? The suffering endured in the camps was enormous. The former deportees wanted the experience, once it was over, to have served some purpose to automatically produce a positive impact. Yet nothing of the sort happened, of course. There was nothing constructive the dead wouldn't be resuscitated. Once back in France, Tillon returned to her job at, as a scientific researcher, but she didn't feel she could start again anthropology, as if nothing had happened. She changed fields and decided to become a historian and to work on documenting and studying the resistance and the deportation. She found the work depressing, but consider it essential. She was responsible for documenting the stories of all the resistance fighters and deportees with whom she had been remotely in contact, so that survivors and families could get their pensions. It was an overwhelming task, First of all, because of bureaucratic red tape, she mentioned that the widow had to produce 16 different official certificates, and nine for each orphan. This hasn't changed much in France, I don't know, in this country. But uh, also because she had to face a thousand broken lives, and reconstruct the circumstances of the torture, deportation, executions of those she knew well. There was more. Her own historical work, however essential, left her with a bitter taste. She had to eliminate countless details and abandon research for innumerable more details to extract the matter-of-fact data required of administrative, or for that matter, historical research, names, dates, figures, yet these were real, unique women, each one dear to her, who mourned at her side. Science has no use for individuals, yet nothing is more precious. Real life was being transformed into abstract, impersonal history right before her eyes, just as if it were being crushed a second time. Courtrooms didn't enthuse her any more than history did. Tiong was the delegate for French deportees during the trial of the Ravensbrück prison guards in 1947. On her return, she described the reasons for her distress to her comrades. The totalitarian crimes were of such magnitude that they eluded justice. Legal processes judged and sentenced isolated individuals, Yet this period involved crimes of states, repeated countless times by representatives who believed they were obeying laws and orders. The evil introduced in the world would persist for many long years, perhaps centuries. An additional reason for the bleak despair she felt came from another experience, During this trial, held in Germany and in France, she couldn't help but observe the former torturers who had become prisoners in turn, and to note that as prisoners, they behaved as she and her comrades had done. They were therefore ordinary people for whom she felt a certain sense of compassion. Or in her words, I realized that while hating them, I pitied them, and this made me ill. The penultimate chapter in Tillon's coming of age story would be written during the Algerian war. In 1954, On the request of France, she returned to the country she knew so well because of her pre-war experience, this time to try to prevent an upsurge in the war. Initially, she did not support independence because she feared the result would further impoverish the Algerian population. Instead, she dreamed of an economic symbiosis between the two countries. She believed that malaise was rooted in the poverty and lack of education of the Algerian population, and proposed fighting these problems by creating a special institution called social centers that would educate everyone, urban dwellers as well as people in the most remote villages, boys and girls, children and illiterate adults. She believed that a diploma was a better legacy than a plot of sterile land or a few scrawny goats. Now, neither the FLN who conducted the struggle nor the French government adopted option. Each side tried to win the battle through force using such methods as murder, attacks against civilians, widespread torture, the creation of camps, tyrannical rule in prison, regular executions, all of which fostered increasing hatred on both sides. Starting in January 1957, when the French army took control of the police force, Tion changed her mind, and her primary adversary became the escalating violence, even more than, than poverty, thus. She began to support independence and worked at the risk of her own life to prevent attacks against people, regardless of their origins. She failed many times, as had happened 15 years earlier, during the trial of the de network, yet many times succeeded, too. Maybe a few hundred people were saved by her. Every effort was worthwhile, as each human life is as precious as any other. For Tion, this new war resembled the old one in many ways. Not obviously in the overall context of the conflict, a world war against a fascist and Nazi aggressor earlier, a war of independence against the colonial power at this time nor in terms of Tillon's own role, an actor and victim in the first conflict, a concerned observer in the second. But from the moment she set foot in Algeria, following a long absence, she was struck by a strange feeling of déjà vu. During this inquiry, she wrote, concerning the Algerian prisons and camps conducted by David Rosset's commission, of which he was part, I became certain with such shame, such pain, of the widespread use of torture. When Algerian peasants were searched by French soldiers, they raised their arms with the same distress as did the French when they were arrested by Gestapo agents. The attacks, imprisonment, betrayals, and torture used the same psychic and social mechanisms. The executions of the Algerian terrorists inevitably reminded her of her colleagues of the resistance movement, and her helplessness to protect them from such cruel suffering once again. Similar, too, were the explanations for the victory provided by the ephemeral victors who credited it to their superior intelligence or morality. What was new for Tillon, however, was the violence of the confrontation, where attacks on one side were followed immediately by attacks from the other, but with greater intensity. Each action by one of the adversaries fueled the indignation and the righteous conscience of the other in a vicious circle that only exacerbated them. With blind, uh, And this would lead her to speak of She coined a term for this. She called it the complementary enemies. Acts of torture were met with blind attacks, which led to capital executions, followed by even more deadly attacks. Violence engendered the humiliation that engendered the violence how to stop this bleak machine. Though not by design, Tion found herself in the role of a mediator, intervening on one side, then on the other, on behalf of the two belligerents, to try to convince either one to stop the escalation, even without anything in return. Her purpose was not to stop the war that was for politicians to do, in a much more modest and realistic way. She was merely trying to, as she wrote, gradually diminish the mutual hate and terror of both communities, to lower the tension enough to make possible an eminently human act, sit around a table and talk to each other. Another new element in her situation at that time was that the causes and principles she wanted to uphold were not all on the same side. She had already considered this contradiction when she joined the resistance and discovered that a love of truth and the love of country could be two different things. Or when in prison, she felt relief at no longer having to set her patriotism against her acceptance of humanity in all its diversity. But this time, the reconciliation seemed even harder as her loyalties were divided between the two warring sides. Her work as an anthropologist led her to an in-depth understanding of Algeria's Muslims Arabs, and Berbers. Her visits, which spanned a number of years, created bonds of empathy, trust, and friendship. Her commitment to the truth left her in no doubt that these people were mistreated, humiliated, hounded, and tortured. Her experience as a deportee conditioned her reactions. It was prison that made me aware of the ordeal of the Algerian people, she wrote in 61. Because I felt the sorrows, the humiliations they experienced, I understood the ordeals they had faced. Yet, she could never embark on a fight against her own country. She therefore found herself saddled with duties that pulled her in opposite directions, patriotism and justice, solidarity with her own people and the right of people to independence, compassion for the victims of the present as well as for those of the future. Would she join those who serve their country or those who obey their conscience? She neither could nor would relinquish either the solidarity with her native land or what she called the extreme compassion inspired in her by the afflictions of the Algerian people. She could identify with both sides even as the war raged on. She ultimately chose not to choose by saving the maximum number of people from death and torture without determining their political beliefs beforehand. I refuse to kill one to save another, she said. It was an inextricable situation in principle, but one that could be solved on a case by case basis by calculating the degree of urgency, as Tiong did. And this final formative experience, therefore, taught her to accept the fact that no overarching principle will ever be sufficient. Finally, and this is the last episode of her life I want to recount, Tiong. Modified her very approach to her profession as an anthropologist and historian. And this refers to the introduction of the present lecture. Tillon returned to France in 58, where she had just been elected at the Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes, one of French hair education institutions, and after finishing a book on the Algerian War, The Complementary Enemies, in 1960, in which she elaborated on her moral and political stance for the first time, she decided to rethink her approach to anthropology or history revising it from a viewpoint informed by everything she had experienced since. Her project had changed from the pre-war years. At this point, she planned to describe her personal experience in the field rather than merely present her findings. And also add, to this first account, a second part, describing her war experience. Because by this point, she knew that an education acquired throughout an entire lifetime was no less relevant for the understanding of a people, in her case, this Algerian population, than her observation on the field. Thus, she started a new project, a book, based on her experience as an anthropologist, but also as a resistant fighter and a deportee, which outlined the foundation of knowledge in the social sciences. It was a radical project. Tillon had always wanted to understand human nature of which she had now a more complex conception, as it included behaviors of both total abnegation and sadistic pleasure. But she conceived at the same time nothing less than a revolution in the approach to the humanities, and generally speaking, knowledge about the human condition. Tillon's basic idea was that it was useless to aspire to pure objectivity in this field. To understand others, we always and necessarily draw on our own subjective awareness. The social sciences, as they they were pursued then, missed the point. I quote, I would like to note that scientific reports, those based on the observation of others, are hollow and artificial. To understand a population, one must both live it and look at it. This is why those who live must learn to look, and those who look must learn to live. Either way, information must not be confused with knowledge. The former is created by stacking up impartial data. The latter is an interaction between the information and the individual subject absorbing them, an interaction that ultimately transforms both the subject subject becomes someone else, the information is transformed into meaning. Tiong also compared objective knowledge to musical scores, an individual's real life experience, to mastering scales. Our entire learning process, she wrote, resembles written notes on a musical score, and our real life experience is the sound of notes without which the score remains dead. How many historians, psychologists, anthropologists, specialists of mankind, when they collate their data, resemble a lifelong deaf person copying the sharps and flats of a sonata. Yet, if we only understand others through ourselves, the basic approach to the social sciences has to change, with information gathering constantly linked to personal experience, by pursuing what Ti-Yong called the dual apprenticeship. In this field, who the researcher is, is no less important than what he or she knows. And this is why she decided that her knowledge of war was crucial to her work as anthropologist. The final date written in the manuscript is March 64, Several months later, although she had been working on the project since 47, Tillon temporarily put it aside. She then began an equally ambitious project, but one that no longer dealt with learning in the humanities and no longer resembled a life story. This was her study of family structures in the Mediterranean Region called in French Le Harem et Cousins, and in the English translation, The Republic of Cousins, which she started in late 64 and published in 66. I think it's not hard to see why she gave up. Tillon probably didn't feel up to triggering an open conflict with all her colleagues. The overriding goal of the social sciences in those years had been to maintain a strict separation between observing and living, and to eliminate all subjectivity from research findings as these sciences wanted to achieve the status of natural sciences. Tillon therefore, abandoned the idea of a global work on this subject, though without renouncing her discovery. I will just say a few words in conclusion. As uh, she celebrated her 100th birthday in May 2007, a major theater in Paris staged the first performance of the Ferfugbar in Hell. The audience discovered and applauded the operetta, which was composed in Ravensbrück but never performed in the camp, only read to the inmates. Germain Dion died one year later. The French president paid tribute to her memory and attended her funeral. In France today, many streets, schools, and libraries carry her name. Yet the public image of Germaine Tillon is pretty weak. It lacks, of course, her personal qualities, her sense of humor. Anti conformism, informality. But also, it lacks a few of her public traits. Today, she is commemorated as one of the earliest members of the resistance movement, and sometimes as the human rights activist who fought against slavery, torture, abuse in prison and the persecution of illegal immigrants. Yet this woman, whose destiny overlapped with the entire history of 20th century France, was certainly all this, but also much more. A luminous figure in a somber era. A woman who experienced evil without ever considering herself as an incarnation of good, who was able to transform her painful experiences from the past into life lessons for the present, notably as demonstrated by her attitude during the Algerian war. And a woman who integrated her commitment to public affairs with her study of human nature in a unique way one perpetually transforming the other, action nourishing thought, and vice versa. So I can only hope that her future readers and my audience will give Tillon credit in the future. Thank you.
1: Questions? Yeah. Questions? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, Professor. Um, I was wondering, what do you think we can take from T example?
2: very concrete example would be to follow her lead in her fight against torture. I think you're the citizens of the only country that recently has legalized torture. And uh, of course, this is a major trend on which each citizen uh, can feel, about which each citizen can feel concerned. Another is the reaction that one may have towards an ongoing war in which your country is engaged. But uh, on a less uh, dramatic tone, I think that one should also follow the lead of her understanding of knowledge in the humanities. And I think this we can do without having to become heroes or uh, fight uh, against uh, oppression. Because uh, it seems to me that uh, early enough in the 60s, at a time when uh, knowledge in the humanities and the social sciences was perceived as necessarily the, the better, the more it could, the further it could go away from personal experience to objective data, the better. And I think that her uh, contribution was not at all to abandon objective data, she always spent a uh, long time in, uh, in uh, collecting historical data on each uh, issue she was going to study. But also to take into account who she was and how this identity of hers influenced the understanding of other people and of other cultures. And I think that this is extremely important heritage and a rather rare one, because we still live with this ideal of science which means the, the elimination of all subjectivity, of all personal presence in the results of what we are stating. So, uh, these are a few leads, a few paths that one may follow by uh, getting inspired by her. Also, of course, there is a more specific lesson for uh, as, a, as a woman, because uh, Germain Tillon, became an exemplary figure in a time when women were deprived of civil rights and uh, had a lot of difficulty in achieving any kind of position, higher position in in sciences or in education or in politics. And uh, thanks to her uh, courage, she was able to to intervene on the public scene in a very efficient way. Uh, I think what struck me personally, because I knew her in the last 10 years of her life, which means between 90 and 100, she she wasn't very young at that time. But uh, what struck me most was that she spoke to her cleaning lady and to the President of the Republic in exactly the same way, on the same tone, which was just saying the truth of what she believed was the truth. So I think she was a good example, and we need examples because uh, general principles is a good thing, but uh, examples is even better.
1: Um, Professor, if as historians we are supposed to cast normatives on (coughs) our world's history and in in particular our world as it is, then how do we, and in particular you, deal with um, the claimed rights of sovereign nations to disagree over what fundamental human rights are? If we are going to cast normatives on what we study as historians, then how do we deal with the claimed rights of sovereign nations to disagree on what fundamental human rights
2: are? Uh How do we reconcile local values and universal values? (laughs) With difficult. <laughs> uh, we, we sometimes consider as human rights or as universal rights uh, what is only a projection of our identity. This is more or less how things happened during the long period of colonial conquest which was indeed accomplished in the name of superior values. And uh, afterwards we have trouble identifying these superior values and perceive those which were rather uh, in the interest of the nation that led the, the conquest itself. But if I refer not uh, just to the whole of history, but to Germaine Tillon, she was clearly in uh, a very difficult position because of her loyalty to her country. And so she never became um, porteur de valise, as they say in France. That is, she didn't join the FLN to fight against france well she found as universal value saving individual lives she thought that uh, rather than fighting for an abstraction she will fight for lives for human lives And she managed, because she was a former resistor and a deportee, and she had a certain authority and prestige in France, and some of her former friends who had been in concentration camps were now working in various higher administrations in France, she could intervene in that case and thus save people, extract them from the military prison where they were being tortured and bring them to an ordinary prison and then from the ordinary prison to bring them to a regime of, of half liberty and then of full liberty and so on. So this is one specific example and one specific value of the individual, of uh, protecting individuals rather than saving humanity, saving individual people.
1: Um, why was it that as a woman of compassion, during the trials when her hatred turned to pity, she felt ill?
0: And then did she ever regain her faith? So two questions.
2: Of, uh, you mean the the trial of the concentration camp guards and so on? Um, well, I, I think that uh, she moved more and more towards compassion and uh, thought towards the end of her life that prison shouldn't be a place where people are punished for what they have done, but only a place where they are kept until they can make some harm, can produce some so, it is a moment they have to be imprisoned for the time being while they are dangerous to society. But not a place where they have to be kept because they have committed a crime. If they are not dangerous, no reason to keep them in prison. And that will be a much better solution for everyone. So, although. This went very much against her uh, spontaneous reactions because of the intensity of sufferance in the camps. Her conscious attitude was more and more to consider that, well, these late trials, for instance, 40 years later, 50 years later, of people who were 80 or 85, or 90, weren't (laughs) necessary. And the second question was? Um, Did she ever regain her faith? Her faith, no, she never did. She used to say that of the three virtues, uh, faith, uh, hope, and charity, she had the latter two, but faith, Final question,
1: Final question. I think. Uh, just to build off my friend's question about her making normative judgments about texts. We've learned this year about a bunch of different frameworks you can use for morality. So there's sort of utilitarian frameworks, there's sort of Kantian frameworks. I was wondering when you're making you personally are making normative judgments about texts, do you adopt a particular framework, or do you just sort of uh, say like individual lives are good, protecting individual lives are good, or do you have sort of an overarching framework that you use?
2: I don't think that we can uh, behave in moral questions as scholars and refer to class two or three where we studied this kind of morality and wonder whether it applies or not. I think that basically these things come afterwards. We spontaneously react in a certain way. This is what used to be called in a very outdated vocabulary our conscience. And uh, because of our conscience, we react in a certain way. And then we can elaborate this through utilitarian morality or Kantian principles or Or uh, caring about persons and not uh, referring to abstract principles, and we can debate about that in classes. But uh, this is really a a very old wisdom, I think. uh, uh, Saying, I think it's in uh, in Mencius, you know, the Chinese uh, (coughs) disciple of Confucius. Who said uh, if we see that a child is falling in a well, we don't ask ourselves questions: Which way? Is it right? Is it wrong? We just run to save it. And uh, I think this is the basis of morality. Thank you. Thank you. But, uh, I think some of you will be here tomorrow at uh, 6 no, it's or four. 5, 4. four. No. Four. No.
1: Four. no. Four. no. Four. What? Yes. It's don't after. i take like, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the <laughs> seminar tomorrow sorry. at
2: 4, okay. public yes.
1: seminar tomorrow at 4, and then I'm going to take you across to meet yeah. with them. It will and be across. across. Yes. But, but, sorry. I thought you were talking about the seminar. No, I <laughs>